Welcome to Walk in Truth. These are the Bible teachings of Pastor Michael Lance, equipping you to reach out with God's truth to all people and how to apply that truth to today's issues, trends, and culture. You can learn more about the program and our church when you visit walkintruth.com. Now here's Pastor Michael's teaching in Isaiah 54 called, Your Husband is Your Maker. So Isaiah's chapter 54 and 55 have been called response chapters. So when you, when you hear that phrase, you say, okay, response to what? And they are response chapters to Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53 is the most majestic, wonderful, incredible, deep, and profound chapter on the death of the Messiah, written by the hand of Isaiah at least 700 years before the Messiah ever arrived on the scene in minute detail. Isaiah lays out for us the um, solution to all that ails us, not only us, but of course, in this immediate context, the people of Israel. And so as he goes through Isaiah 53, and some of you were with us, he talks about Jesus. In verse 4 of Isaiah 53, he talks about that he, uh, surely our griefs he bore, our sorrows he carried. We ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions, our, our sins. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our shalom, our well-being, fell upon him. And by his scourging, we are healed. If you go down to verse 10, it says, But the Lord, or the Father here is in view, was pleased to crush him. Putting him to grief, if he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring, and that's a key thought for tonight, he will prolong his days. Even though he's going to be crushed, his days will be prolonged, and we talked about how that implies the resurrection, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many. Many will be declared righteous before the Father because of the Son. He will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great. He will divide the booty with the strong because he poured out himself to death. He was numbered with the transgressors. Think of when he was crucified between the two criminals. Yet he himself bore the sins of many. There it is again. And he interceded for the transgressors. That's all of us. And then we get the next statement, Isaiah 54, 1. What does it say? Shout for joy. That is the proper response to Isaiah 53. The proper response to the gospel for all of us sometimes tight-collared, very uh, proper Christians is to shout for joy. Because the Lord has accomplished our redemption. I don't know if we're ready for that. Really? Should we shout? Well, we shout for our football teams. I shout at my baseball team, especially if they're not performing well. It's usually something like this. What are you doing? Why did you swing at that pitch? That kind of thing. They can't hear me, but yet I shout. But here, there is a shout for joy. Let me ask you a question. When's the last time you shouted 
for joy. You know, sometimes we're sitting in what we would call somewhat conservative evangelical churches, and, you know, someone preaches something and somebody says, Amen! And everybody goes, Right? Yeah, they start talking to the preacher. That's the most spiritual person in the house because they're shouting, (laughs) right? (laughs) Amen! All right, we want to be spiritual tonight, right? See, Isaiah 53 should make us shout for joy. And we've been learning in Luke 15 that heaven shouts for joy. When what happens? When one sinner comes to repentance. Three times we see it. The lost sheep is found, there's joy in heaven. In the same way, there's joy in heaven. The lost coin is found, in the same way, there's joy in heaven. The lost son is found, and the father does what? Kills the fatted calf, he gets the robe, he gets the ring, he gets the sandals, and they have a party. And what does the son, the older son, in the field hear? He hears the sound of music and dancing. So this is not a Baptist wedding with fruit punch. Sorry if you're a Baptist. (laughs) Right? This is a whole lot of hooping, is that a word? (laughs) And hollering because there's joy. One writer said that Isaiah 54.1 may be the most disobeyed command in the Christian church. Do you hear that? Isaiah 54.1 might be the most disobeyed command in the Bible. Why? Well, maybe it's not proper. We start thinking things like that, you know. Maybe we should hold back a little, you know. Maybe the the people who walk in will see us do that and they'll think, these people are a little wild and crazy. Now we know, of course, there's, there's balance here. But do we measure our worship services just by the orthodox nature of our creed or by the passion of our worship? I would submit to you we should do both. We need to have orthodox doctrine. And of course, if you're, you've been around living truth, you know that that's very much a focus of this church. But at the same time, we need to have passionate worship. And I'm not just talking about when we sing songs here, although you know, that's one way that we express it. And of course, that's really what this particular command is because if you have an NIV, it says, Sing, O barren woman. Uh, Shout for joy, O barren one. Uh, Sometimes I think we fail to realize how profound and how significant our salvation really is. Because our salvation is not just about this life. It's about an eternal life where God will restore back to us all that the locust has eaten. And he will build an everlasting city And he will be in the midst of that city and we will see the face of God. And sometimes we hear that, but I'm not sure we really embrace it. And we even say, you know what? One day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere, right? But when we hear texts like this, we see the second phrase and it says, shout for joy, but then it addresses somebody. It says, oh, barren one. Or if you have the NIV, it says, oh, barren woman. And if you know anything about Jewish culture, you know that the last person shouting for joy was a barren woman. Because in that culture, you were disgraced if you could not produce offspring. 
And many commentators, when they see the reference to the barren one, they immediately connect the idea to Sarah. Sarah was the wife of Abraham. She was Sarai. He was Abram. And then he became Abraham and she became Sarah. And the main problem with this aging couple was they could not have a child. And Abraham was hearing that God had promised him this, these incredible promises, but he said, you know, Lord, okay, you've made this promise, but is Eleazar from my household going to be the one? And God said, no, someone from your own body is going to be the one. He's going to be the son of promise. But my wife's barren. But the son of promise did come. And we know, you know, if you've read the book of Genesis, we, we know that Abraham and Sarah tried to rush things and they got Hagar involved and Ishmael. But in the end, Isaac did come. Isaac arrived. He was the son of prom- promise. And he was a miraculous child because he came at a time in life where it was well beyond childbearing age. But God intervened and his name was called laughter. And the implication is he brought joy. It was kind of funny when you looked at him because it was funny in this sense. Look what God does. He takes something that looks so barren and he produces life, but not just life. If we follow Isaac, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, we understand how significant his arrival is because through his line comes who? The, the Messiah of Isaiah 53. That is the majestic nature of our God. He takes barrenness and turns it into life. He takes impossible situations and exploits them for his good purposes. That is our God. And that is what Isaiah 54 is all about. It's about saying to a people that seemingly are barren. After all, at this juncture in the book, they're in Babylonian captivity. They're, the walls of their beloved city are down. The gates are down. The, the city's burned. What is left? How can you sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? Even when your captors are telling you, sing some worship songs by the rivers of Babylon. How do you do that? When barrenness, when it looks like it's barren around you, how can you sing for joy? You, verse 1, who have borne no child. And what, what you have to see is that where the Bible's going is the Bible's saying, look, there's going to be offspring, i.e. Isaiah 53. There's going to be, he's going to see his offspring, but the one through whom the offspring will come is the one who has stepped in to time and space to pay our redemption price. There's going to be many heirs. There's going to be more seed than the stars in the sky, but it's going to come through the blessed seed, if you will, the Christ. You see, this is how God will take the barrenness of Israel and bring life and that more abundantly an offspring innumerable, as God says, of the stars of the sky and the sand of the seashore, because Jesus Christ will step in to the barrenness and they will see a great light and he will arrive uh, among the people who are in darkness and so again the command break forth into joyful shouting notice and cry aloud you who have not travailed you haven't been through that childbirth in the natural sense yourself for the sons of the desolate one 
will be, notice, more numerous than the sons of the married woman, says the Lord. You'll hear more from Pastor Michael in a moment. Walk in Truth has more content for you to listen to with our mini-sodes, A Step Closer, where Pastor Michael Lance and others on the Walk in Truth team discuss topics and questions about life from a Christian perspective. You'll also get a chance to get to know the team. The next topic to dive into is the potential overturning of Roe v. Wade. Even if we threw out having to land on when does life begin, when a majority of those abortions happen, right, is in between generally six to 12 weeks. And, you know what I mean, there's a heartbeat, there's, everything's pretty much intact. The only thing that child or that baby needs is time and nutrition. It's fully formed. To listen to the Walk in Truth mini-sodes a step closer, follow Walk in Truth on your favorite podcast app like Spotify, iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts, and more. Again, follow Walk in Truth on your favorite podcast app. We'd love to see who's listening, so please connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Just do a search for Walkin' Truth Show. Now, back to Pastor Michael Lance, right here on Walkin' Truth. There's going to be more seed and than the stars in the sky, but it's going to come through the blessed seed, if you will, the Christ. You see, this is how God will take the barrenness of Israel and bring life and that more abundantly an offspring innumerable, as God says, of the stars of the sky and the sand of the seashore, because Jesus Christ will step in to the barrenness and they will see a great light and he will arrive among the people who are in darkness. And so again, the command, break forth into joyful shouting, notice, and cry aloud, you who have not travailed. You haven't been through that childbirth in the natural sense yourself. For the sons of the desolate one will be, notice, more numerous than the sons of the married woman, says the Lord. See, the very first verse starts out that this, this desolate one, this barren one, not only is she barren, she didn't have a husband. How can she have offspring with those two things working against her. Why would she shout for joy? Why would it be said of her that she'll have more children than a woman married who could bear children unless the Bible's pointing us to a miraculous birth? See, Jesus says, unless you are born again, you will not see the kingdom of heaven. See, the Bible is is taking us down a route to the beauty of those who respond to Isaiah 53, to the uh, redemption price paid by the Messiah. Now, just so we get it right, Isaiah 54 is a response chapter, and it's going to talk about an enlarged tent and many offspring. And Isaiah 55 is going to tell us how to get there and who will be there. If you look, at, look ahead for a moment, Isaiah 55.1 says, Ho, or up, everyone who thirsts, Come to the waters, you who have no money, come buy and eat, 55.1. Come buy wine and milk without money, notice, and without cost. Why do you spend money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in abundance. Incline your ear and what? Come to me. 
Listen that you may live, and I will make an everlasting covenant with you according to the faithful mercies shown to David. What we must understand is we got to take Isaiah 54 and 55 together as response chapters. Because when you look at Isaiah 54, it seems like everything's okay, and everybody's going to be brought into the tent. But the truth of the matter is, the only ones that are going to end up in the tent of the Lord are those who have come to the waters of the Lord. There's still an invitation. There is still a need to come. There's still a need to come without cost, without price, but there is still a need to believe and turn to the Lord. So as you read Isaiah 54, we need to make sure that we understand 54 and 55 give us the full picture. But the barren woman is called to sing because she will be fruitful. Verse 2, it says in Isaiah 54, enlarge the place of your tent, stretch out. It's kind of like preparation here. Build it bigger, you know, and they will come. Stretch out the curtains of your dwellings. Spare not. Lengthen your cords and strengthen your pegs. The next thing after the rejoicing, there's going to be a lot of offspring. You're going to have multitudes of offspring. Is you got to have a place to put these people, right? And so now the command is given to enlarge the place of your tent. Stretch out the curtains of your dwellings. Those of you who have growing families can relate to needing to do this. Spare not the length of your cords. The idea there is, you know, don't, don't hold back and strengthen your pegs. Get ready because there's lots of people coming into the covenant. Now, there's a practical application here. Sometimes as you walk along in your Christian life, the Lord will speak something like 54.2 to you. He will say to you, Maybe not in these exact words. I want you to enlarge your tent. I want you to start spreading out because I want to do more with your life. I want, to, I want you to open up your life to deeper ministry. And I want you to open up, maybe we could even say your heart to what I really want to do in your life. I want to stretch out your tent. I want to make your impact bigger in this world. Let me say to you, this is a practical application that really struck me in verse Two, if you want to enlarge your tent, look at verse two. You need to strengthen your pegs. The only way that you're going to enlarge the ministry impact that you can have in this world is if you strengthen your walk with Jesus Christ. That's the only way it's going to happen. God will spread out your tent, your impact, Uh, the people that you can reach and impact for Christ, but he will only do it as you strengthen the foundation. I don't know if you've noticed this, but it seems to me that the more I've dug in and become a student of scripture and really sought to know my God, the more opportunities he's given to me. And, And I'm not talking about just platforms where I'm in a pulpit. I'm talking about with individual people. You know, I'll start off a morning and to be, you know, transparent, doesn't happen every morning, but I'll start it off by saying, Father, you know, lead me to somebody to talk to about the gospel. Oh, inevitably, I get an opportunity. You know, I put on the full armor of God first thing in the morning. I start my day at a Bible study, whatever. Inevitably, the Lord widens my tent. I strengthen the pegs, he widens the tent. That's a spiritual principle, brothers and sisters. So if you want your ministry to be wider, if you want the impact that you can have on others to be more uh, 
impactful, glorifying to God, then strengthen the peg. And God will do some stretching. <laughs> Sometimes stretching is not comfortable. You know, you, you begin to strengthen the foundations and you're getting into the word and you say, Lord, I'm going to step out in this ministry. And all of a sudden, your tent gets stretching. Oh, 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 oh. I feel too good. There was a snap, a crackle, and a pop, and a tear. It's all right. You know what I'm saying? For you will spread abroad, verse 3, to the right and to the left, and your descendants will possess nations. Here the primary thought is of Israel, but think of the whole kingdom of God here. They will resettle the desolate cities. And uh, the New King James says, for you shall expand to the right and to the left, and your descendants will inherit the nations. Or the Gentiles, says the King James Version, and make the desolate cities inhabited. I think we, we have some pictures here, maybe to the uh, role of the saints in the end times. In Psalm 2, verse 8, it says of the Messiah, Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as thine inheritance, and the very ends of the earth as thy possession. Go to uh, Genesis 22. Genesis 22. As uh, the son of promise is born, and remember, Sarah is at the backdrop of this, and Paul actually deals with this thought and kind of uh, brings some further clarity to it in Galatians 4, 21 through 31. You can read that later if you'd like. But in Genesis 22, the son of promise has accompanied his dad, Abraham, up on Mount Moriah, the very mountain where Jesus would die 2,000 years later. He's obeyed the voice of God and uh, he has taken his son, his only son, in obedience to the Lord. And notice what, how this scene now unfolds. As he's been obedient to God, the angel of the Lord, Genesis twenty-two, fifteen, called to Abraham a second time from heaven. And he said, by myself I have sworn, and by the way, most scholars believe the angel of the Lord is none other than Jesus before the manger. By, by myself, Genesis twenty two sixteen, I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son. Indeed, I will greatly bless you and I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heavens and as the sand which is on the seashore. And your seed, notice, shall possess the gate of their enemies. And in your seed... All the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. It's amazing. Right there in Genesis 22, where we have a depiction, a prophetic picture of the cross and the resurrection, Abraham is further promised by his obedience that the nations will be inherited by the offspring that comes from a picture of what? The gospel. And I think that includes all the people of God. So go back to the book of Isaiah. So here we have this, this tent being enlarged. Isaiah 54, look at verse four with me. God is making tremendous promises to a people that have been through a difficult time and are in the midst of difficult um, situations. And he says to them these two heartfelt words that we all need to hear again and again. 54.4 says, fear not. Fear not. Another way to put it is, don't be afraid. 
And the truth of the matter is, we're afraid. What are we afraid of? Well, there's lots of things. Sometimes we're afraid of humiliation. Sometimes we're afraid of failure. Sometimes we're afraid of letting God down. Sometimes we're afraid that our faith will fail us. And God says, fear not for notice to a captive people. You will not be put to shame, 54.4. Neither feel humiliated. Now this, all the backdrop of this is a, a wife forsaken. You know, she's, she doesn't have a husband. She's barren. She's alone. She's in captivity. And as she looks at her condition, remember, this is all really pointing to captive Israel. What does she think to herself? I am here because of my choices. I'm alone. I'm barren. I don't have a husband. And the two things that constantly pull at my soul are shame and humiliation. And God says to that woman, don't you be afraid. Don't you think that you'll be put to shame. Neither should you feel humiliated. For you will not be disgraced, but you will forget the shame of your youth and the reproach of your widowhood, the fact that you're alone. You will remember no more. Now, I don't know about you, but I have some sins from my youth. You know, Paul talks about flee youthful lusts in 2 Timothy 2.22. And I think most of us understand that. I think the bulk of us are a little later in life, so we understand youthful sins and lusts. And what does that really mean? Now, let me qualify this. There are some young people in here tonight that haven't followed a lot of our paths, and I praise God for that. And you, didn't, you haven't made as many mistakes as we did, and we praise the Lord, but you still make some. So this is for you too. But anyway, but it's mostly for me. You see, when I think about my youthful mistakes, especially maybe in my days before Jesus Christ, the emotions that can come to me are fear, shame, and humiliation. And sometimes, even after I know those have been put under the blood, something will come up and I'll think of something I did in the past. I know it's forgiven. I've confessed it. I've repented of it more than once. <laughs> but then it'll just hit my heart and I, and I will say, oh my goodness. And sometimes it feels like it was somebody else that lived that life. What did I do? And the Lord in Isaiah 54, 4, and I hope for many of you that this will minister to you tonight. He says, you will forget that shame of your youth you will forget the reproach of your widowhood, what it caused. You will remember it no more. And I think there's, there's a, pro, a couple layers of promise here, and I don't want to push it too far, but I think one layer of promise is, you know what, for the most part, I have forgotten those things. It does seem like it was another Michael and another lifetime ago. And even when they come up for me, it's, most of the time it's infrequent, if you know what I mean. But I also think there's going to be a day when I get to heaven because the Lord remembers my sin no more, that I think that will be behind me. You know, now I see in a mirror dimly, then I will see face to face. And you know, there's a promise here that I'm not sure we've all thought about before, but you know, we think about God forgetting our sin, but sometimes we don't think about ourselves forgetting our sins. 
You know, the, the truth of the matter is, we can accept forgiveness from God vertically, positionally, we can have all the theology down, but sometimes practically it still keeps bubbling up in our souls. And I think Isaiah 54.4 tells us, you know what, if God has forgotten that, so can you. Now, the, now sometimes things are going to come up because maybe there's a witnessing opportunity and we can say to somebody like Paul did, I used to do that. You know, Paul said, I was a violent aggressor. I persecuted the church of Christ. Sometimes it may be a tool, but hopefully that's all it will be. Paul said, you know, this is sure testimony. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the chief or the foremost of all. And so think of this wifeless, uh, this husbandless, uh, she's a wife, but she, she doesn't have a husband. She's a widow. She's barren. And God steps in and says, for your husband, the Hebrew word is actually B-A-A-L. It's the idea of master and Lord. Your husband, the one connected to you deeply relationally is the idea of the word. Your husband is your maker. You see, God says to a barren person who may be swimming in the consequences of decisions that they made and thinking, I'm abandoned, I'm alone, I'm going to have to deal with this the rest of my life. God steps in and says, the reason that you're going to have all these offspring and widen your tent and you're going to have a ministry and you're going to have a renewed life is because I'm your husband. See, God steps in to people's lives when it seems like no one else will and he says, I'm your husband, I'm your maker, Notice, just to emphasize the power of his authority, whose name is the Lord of hosts. If you have the NIV, it says, the Lord Almighty is his name. He's your redeemer. He's the Holy One of Israel. He is called the God of all the earth. I think the Holy Spirit puts that there just to say, after God says, I'm your husband, you go, are you sure, Lord? He says, let me just give you a few of my names. Okay, here's who I am. I'm your maker, right? Not only am I your husband, I'm your maker, I'm the Lord of Almighty. I'm your Redeemer, Goel. I'm the one who, if you lift me up, if you humble yourself, I will redeem you. That's the idea of the word. I'm the Holy One of Israel, and I'm the God of how much? All the earth. I'm the one. I'm going to make a declaration over you. The word for links us to the previous section in verse 6. For the Lord, notice who's the one that calls. The Lord has called you like a wife forsaken, and grieved in spirit, even like a a wife of one's youth when she is rejected, says your God. God initiates the call to a woman in this context who's been abandoned by her husband because of her choices. See, if the Lord is the husband, then the, the whole scene starts to to come to the surface that Israel is in captivity because they cheated on God with the idols of the world. And God said, okay, if that's what you want, you're going to go into captivity. And they did. And they were there for 70 years, which, you know, for most is a lifetime. And God said, even though you've done that, I will call to you. And he initiates the call. Verse 6, it is the Lord that calls to this uh, forsaken one. Hosea 3.1, the Lord says to Hosea the prophet, go again, love a woman who is loved by her husband. 
yet an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the sons of Israel. God says to Hosea, who ended up marrying a prostitute as a picture of his faithfulness to Israel, you go back and you love her because you will be a living picture of my love for my people. That even though they cheated on me, I will call them back. See, that's the picture here. And God says, for a brief moment, look at verse seven, for a mere moment, New King James, I forsook you, but with great compassion I will gather you. I want you to notice notice the contrast between the brief and the everlasting as we go through this. In an outburst or a surge of anger, I hid my face from you, notice, for a moment, but with everlasting loving kindness or with uh, undying love. You could call this the loyal love, the hesed in Hebrew. I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. You know, I think we've all had a moment, and maybe it turned out to be longer than a moment, where we had a burst of anger, and, and, we, and we were right. I mean, after all, the Lord's anger here is right. And 70 years doesn't seem like a moment, does it? But compared to eternity, 70 years is a moment. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4, for momentary, 17, light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond comparison as we look to the things which are what? Eternal. While we look not at the things which are seen, but the things which are not seen, the things which are seen are temporal, temporary, the things which are not seen are eternal. God says for a moment. We've all had a moment, and maybe, <laughs> maybe a longer moment, where we had a burst of anger, an outburst of anger, and it was legitimate. And we said to someone, you wronged me, you did this, and we were right. But in God's economy, even though if if you took all of our sins and numbered them or had a DVD player of all of our lives and thoughts, there would be more than one moment where God would have legitimate wrath against me breaking his commandments and thought, word, and deed. But God says, even to his own rebellious, idolatrous people, in an outburst of anger, in a surge of anger, I hid my face just for a moment, but with hesed, with everlasting loving kindness, I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. You see, here's the whole key. Here's why he can do it. Because he is our Redeemer. Because he pays the price. He takes the wrath of God so that we can be in that undying, unfailing love relationship. God so loved the world that he gave. See, that's why Jesus came. And God says in verse nine, for this is like the days of Noah to me. Here's a comparison. When I swore that the waters of Noah should not flood the earth again, you could write down Genesis 9, 11 and 13. So I have sworn that I will not be angry with you, nor will I rebuke you. Now in the flood, what happened? God did flood the world. And how many people survived? Eight. And in the flood, God's wrath was satisfied. And he put the bow in the sky to say, I will never flood the earth again. That was the promise to Noah. And in the flood of wrath that came upon Jesus Christ, God's wrath is satisfied. And so if you come to the waters, Isaiah 55, 1 through 3, and you come to accept the free gift, God's wrath has been satisfied because it was poured where? On Jesus Christ. 
and God can make a declaration to anybody in Christ, which is the proper term in the New Testament, if you're in Christ, you have salvation, that, his, that he will not be angry with you anymore. He will judge you no more. He is no longer counting your sins against you because you are in Christ and his flood of wrath has been satisfied in the Messiah. And thus we come right back to Isaiah 53. In him, he is our peace. You see, the wrath of God is satisfied. This is the New Testament word that you often see, propitiation. It means to satisfy the wrath of God. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours alone, also for the sins of the whole world, 1 John 2, 2. And the key to that is you must come into the covenant through the Son. And if you come, he will give you the free gift of uh, everlasting life. For the mountains may be removed just so we don't doubt the promise, the hills may shake, verse 10, but my loving kindness, here it is, if you have an NIV, it says my unfailing love, my hesed, will not be removed from you and my covenant of peace will not be shaken, says the Lord who has compassion on you. The Bible has to keep reminding us of these things because we read it and we go, really? Is it really satisfied? Or is there going to be a day when I'm shocked and I really get judged for my sins anyway and God is really mad at me? No. If you're in Christ, you have the covenant of peace. You have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, Romans 5.1, and Ephesians 2.14 says, He himself is our peace. Can you rest in that? See, that's what it means to believe the gospel. That's what it means to be in the covenant. And you say, well, okay, that's wonderful, but man, I'm afflicted. <laughs> this world is tough. We've had uh, two saints, you know, two mothers, grandmothers go home to be with the Lord in the last 48 hours or so. And we have several people in the hospital right now. Where, you know, my wife looked at me the other day and said, there's so much going this world, sometimes we say that. This world, yeah, I feel you. Live in the same world as you do. And God says to this people, because they're hearing these promises, but remember where they are. He says, oh, afflicted one, verse 11. Some of you are just going to underline that right now. You're going to own that one, right? It says city, oh, afflicted city in the NIV, but that's not the best translation. The best translation is actually, oh, afflicted one, Storm-tossed, is this you? If you have an NIV, it says lashed by storms. Whew, yeah, feel it. And not comforted. I mean, if we stop there right now, you say, that's me. I feel like I go out of a storm and back into a storm. I'm looking for, what do they call those? Glassy waters. You know, water skiers love those. But they don't happen very often. Have you noticed? Classy waters are rare occasions. You catch them every now and then, and then all of a sudden, the wind starts blowing again. The waves start coming again. It gets bumpy again. And you say, I'm the afflicted one. Lashed by storms. Yes. But God says, behold, I want you to look at middle of verse 11. I want you to look at something else. Behold, look, 
I will set your stones in antimony. The NIV uh, has it as turquoise, which is a bluish green stone. The reason it's a little ambiguous is because scholars don't really know for sure what the Hebrew means here, but it seems to be a turquoise bluish green stone that was used in Solomon's temple. And your foundations I will lay in sapphire. God starts to describe a building, even though the city of Jerusalem is burned to the ground. He starts to get them to look where? Beyond time. See, if you wanted a definition of faith, brothers and sisters, faith is seeing with eyes that look to the future. It's seeing things that are unseen with the conviction that God will make good on them. That's faith. And God says to a captive, barren, poured out, afflicted people, look again, because I'm going to make a new city, and I'm going to build it on top of sparkling jewels. Moreover, 12, I will make your battlements, and the idea of a parapet here is a wall around the edge of a building. I'll make that of rubies. Think of uh, Dorothy's uh, shoes and the wizard, and you're starting to get the idea of the kind of jewel we're talking about. Your gates of crystal, it's a precious stone of fire, a sparkling jewel, and your entire walls will be made of precious stones. And you start to think of your Bible and you start to think, uh, let's see, where, where does it talk about that? Revelation 21 and 22. And what is it? The new Jerusalem. And you start to hear it and you go, Wow. God's talking about the new Jerusalem to the Jews who lived in Jerusalem. Yeah. It's not just for, you know, New Testament Christians. The new Jerusalem's for Jewish people too. (laughs) I know, but yeah. And all your sons will be taught of the Lord, 13. Think of the new covenant. It's listed in Jeremiah 31. Write it down for your notes, 33 and 34. And all your sons will be what? taught of the Lord in the, in the sense of becoming disciples. And the well-being of your sons will be great, or NIV says, great will be your children's peace. Now, we're almost done, but I want you to go to John 6. Jesus quotes Isaiah fifty-four thirteen in John 6. Now, in John 6, he feeds the 5,000 plus women and children. He begins to talk about the fact that he's the bread that came down from heaven to nourish people. They won't hunger and thirst anymore if they come to him, if they believe in him. And in John 6, 44, he says something very interesting. He says, no one can come to me, John 6, 44, unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day, John 6, 45. It is written in the prophets, and they shall be taught of God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father, what do they do? They come to me. Jesus is saying that Isaiah 54, 13, right on the heels of Isaiah 53, says that everybody who is taught by the Father will be taught to come to the Son. Because if you don't have the Son, you don't have the Father, according to 1 John 2, I think it's verse 23. Are you with me? In other words, what God is saying in the person of Jesus Christ is if the Holy Spirit, if God the Father is speaking to you and directing your heart, you will end up coming to Jesus. And he quotes Isaiah 54, 13 to a Jewish audience to tell them he is the bread of God. 
He is the one who will bring life and well-being and peace. Go back to Isaiah 54. Let's finish it up. In righteousness, verse 14, you will be established. You will be far from oppression. I think pointing to the ultimate future when Jesus sets up his millennial kingdom. For you will not fear and, and from terror, for it will not come near you. The city, this condition will be free of oppression, far from it. Uh, you won't fear. You won't have terror. How many people are you know, fearful every day, every night, depressed? All that will be gone. It will not even come near you, verse 14. If anyone fiercely assails you, it will not be from me. God did send in Babylon. He did use Assyria. But now God says, if anybody comes after you, it's not going to be me if you're in this covenant. Whoever assails you will fall because of you. Behold, 16, I myself have created the smith who blows the fire of coals, the guy who can make uh, weapons for warfare, and brings out a weapon for its work. I have created the destroyer, even, who, even the one who wants to destroy, and I create him to ruin in this case. And then it ends with this verse. No weapon, Isaiah 54, 17, that is formed against you shall prosper. And every tongue that accuses you in judgment, you will condemn. This is the heritage. It speaks of the reality of possession. Of the servants of the Lord. And their vindication, if you have uh, New King James, it says their righteousness, which is, I think is closer to the thought. And their righteousness is from me, declares the Lord. And you know, many of us who have looked at Isaiah 54, we've said, that's a verse I'm going to claim. No weapon form against me shall prosper. And we usually don't read the other part, which also says, no accusation against me. Uh, you know, every tongue that accuses you in judgment, you will condemn And who's the one that accuses us day and night before the throne? It's the enemy. But none of his accusations do any good because Colossians 1 says we are free from accusation because of the blood of his cross. So every accusation that the evil one can throw to the throne of God against the saints, and they may be true, we are free from accusation because we are redeemed and cleansed by the blood of the Lamb. So what does it mean no weapon formed against you shall prosper? Tom Papania was in the mafia. He shared a testimony some years ago that he wanted out of the mafia. He had become a Christian through a series of events that are really miraculous. I don't have time to talk to you about it now, but um, contract was put on his head. Uh, you don't get out of the mafia at the level he was at, especially uh, the way you get out is you're killed. So they put a contract on his head and there were people who he later talked to that said they, they put bombs outside of his bedroom window, started the clock for the bomb to explode, and it wouldn't detonate. They'd go out into a field, try to work the bomb, and boom, it would explode. And it wouldn't detonate by his bedroom window. So then he turned on the television one day, and you know, he was wondering what God was doing with his life, and the man who had put a contract on in his life was lying dead in the streets of New York. Someone had killed him. And the scripture that came to his mind in that moment was, if you live by the sword, you'll die by the sword. And he said, I'm not saying that God killed that guy for me. But I'm saying that God has a way of working things out until he wants to take us home. 
Now let's keep in mind as students of the Bible that tradition tells us that Isaiah is mentioned in Hebrews 11 as someone being sawn in two under the reign of a wicked king. Uh, We know the majority of the apostles died a martyr's death. Were the weapons that were formed against them prospering? Well, they worked. Christians were killed in the school in Colorado. So how literally do we take a verse like this? I mean, does it mean that, you know, I can leap tall buildings in a single bound and if someone takes a gunshot at me, the bullets will fall off me like Superman of old? I don't think so. I don't think that this verse is guaranteed, guaranteeing that if a weapon came your way, that it wouldn't hurt you or harm you. But I think if God didn't want it to, it wouldn't. See, this verse must be taken into the sovereign uh, canopy of God. It's His will, not mine. Now, there may be many times when there should have been something that happened and I was protected and that weapon formed against me did not prosper. But there could be another time. I mean, I've hit my finger with a hammer before and I'll tell you, it hurt. My, you know, there wasn't like a deflector shield around my thumb. I'm a Christian, I'm a pastor. Yeah, mm, 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 thumb is still hurting. Knee surgery, right? You know, there, there's no guarantees in this life, but here's what I started thinking. What's the ultimate weapon that the enemy has? What is it? Well, we, we say lies, we talk about spiritual warfare, right? And I think Ephesians 6, 10 through 20 gives us a lot of that kind of insight. We have a belt of truth to deal with his lies. But I think his ultimate weapon is fear. Because we could say, well, it's death, but actually that he's been defanged of death. So let's go all the way to Hebrews 2, and Pastor promises this will be the last section. But I want to show you this, because this is, I started thinking about this, and I know there's been a debate in the church, you know, how literally can we, can we own this verse? Well, I think there's a weapon, Hebrews 2, that we don't, that will no longer prosper. And I think there is some application to the Lord's protection here, but I'll let you think about how far to take that. Hebrews 2, look at verse 9. But we do see him, Hebrews 2, 9, who has been made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Skip down to verse 14. Since then, the children share in flesh and blood. That simply means we're human. He himself, Jesus, likewise also partook of the same. He became human. That through death, he might render what? Powerless him who had the power of death. That is the devil. So there's death. And might deliver those who through, notice, fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. I think death is certainly in view because even though we die physically, the enemy can't touch our souls. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. But I also think it means the fear of death because the biggest fear for man is the fear of death. Close second is the fear of public speaking. (laughs) You know, but that's just the way it is. Now look at this. For assuredly, 16, he does not give help to angels, but he, God, gives help to the descendants of who? 
Abraham, think about the son of promise and all that we saw before. Therefore, Jesus had to be made like his brethren in all things that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God. And here's our word, to make propitiation satisfy God's wrath for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tempted in that which he suffered, he is able to come to the aid or he is able to help those who are tempted. So it all comes back now around to the ministry, the current ministry of our high priest who comes to our aid when we are what? Tempted to do what? Fear what's ahead of us. The greatest temptation I believe Jesus faced in Hebrews 2, 16 through 18 was the cross when he was facing the Garden of Gethsemane. There in the Garden of Gethsemane, he said, Father, if you are willing, let this cup, the cup of your wrath, to satisfy your wrath, pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And he sweat as it were, great drops of blood, and he was falling to the ground, and he said it three times, and to his aid came an angel from heaven, and every time you face your Gethsemane, and you're fearful of the next turn, or the barrenness, or the whatever, or the big picture of, yeah, we're going to have to face our own mortality. He's able to come to your aid because he tasted death for everyone. He won the victory, and he says, don't be afraid. No weapon that he can throw against you will prevail. And all God's people said, Father, we thank you for the majestic victory we have in Jesus. And as Paul celebrates it in Romans 8, he said, what? Who can bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. He says, who is he who condemns? And then he says, what can separate us from the love of Christ? Angels, principalities, powers, life, death, height, depth, any other created thing, nothing will ever be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And so we just rest in the gracious majesty of the gospel. We thank you that you are building a family and stretching out the tent. And despite the shame of our youth and the mistakes we've made, you put the balm of Gilead on it, you move us forward, you say you're in my covenant. I love you. I've declared you righteous. I'm not mad at you. I'm not counting your sins against you. I want you to grow. And I want to enlarge your capacity, your heart, your ministry until I take you home. And when I do, there'll be a great reunion in heaven and you'll be in the company of the saints and you'll see my face. So Father, we are just grateful for that city that you are building. And we're grateful to be part of it. And I just pray every fear and anxiety, every struggle that we have will lay down once again at the foot of the cross, but more specifically at the feet of our great high priest, whoever lives to intercede for us. We love you and we praise you. In Jesus' mighty and matchless name, amen. Would you stand? You've been listening to Your Husband is Your Maker on Walk in Truth. And that's Pastor Michael's teaching in Isaiah 54. Hey, we'd love to connect with our listeners. You can email or send Pastor Michael and the team here a letter. We love mail. You can get all the contact information at walkintruth.com. That's walkintruth.com.
or you can get it now. Our email address is contact at walkintruth.com. That's contact at walkintruth.com. And here's our mailing address if you're ready. You can write Pastor Michael at P.O. Box 2063, Corona, California, 92878. That's P.O. Box 2063, Corona, California, 92878. Now, here's Pastor Michael with a final word. Well, as we move into Isaiah chapter 54, we are trying something a little different. We're going to air the first teaching of the chapter, for example, Isaiah 54 as today, and then the rest will be available on the podcast platforms and where you normally would go to get that information from Walk in Truth. You say, well, Pastor Michael, why are we doing this? Well, we're doing this partly because by July, we're going to get through the book of Isaiah and we are going to air the incredible book of Philippians. We're doing that because we'd like you to access more of the content that's available to you on the Walk in Truth podcast. And of course, you can access that through the website, walkintruth.com. We're doing that because we'd like to hear a little bit more from you about how that content is impacting your life. And uh, we'd love for you to share it as well. Make sure you subscribe today at walkintruth.com. And we'll be back tomorrow as we move into Isaiah chapter 55. Bless you. And remember, Walk in Truth is a listener-supported ministry. Your financial partnership helps us broadcast on this station, provide the podcast for free, and it helps us do our free apologetic events too. Please consider becoming a monthly partner of at least $5 a month. You can donate at walkintruth.com. Now, whether you can give financially or not, would you please spread the word of Walk in Truth around your community? You can tell a couple people to either listen on this station or find Walk in Truth on their podcast app. Remember, if you'd like to hear the rest of Pastor Michael's teaching in Isaiah 54 called Your Husband is Your Maker, you'll find the entire message on the free Living Truth app or follow Walk in Truth on your favorite podcast app. And join us Monday for Pastor Michael's teaching in Isaiah 55 called An Old Testament Invitation. I'm Mike Massaro. Thanks for listening to Walk in Truth. Our goal is to equip you to reach out with God's truth to all people. Walk in Truth has more content for you to listen to with our mini-sodes A Step Closer, where Pastor Michael Lance and others on the Walk in Truth team discuss topics and questions about life from a Christian perspective. You'll also get a chance to get to know the team. The next topic to dive into is the potential overturning of Roe v. Wade. Even if we threw out having to land on when does life begin, when a majority of those abortions happen, right, is in between generally 6 to 12 weeks. And, you know what I mean, there's a heartbeat, there's, everything's pretty much intact. The only thing that child or that baby needs is time and nutrition. It's fully formed. To listen to the Walk in Truth mini-sodes a step closer, follow Walk in Truth on your favorite podcast app like Spotify, iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts, and more. Again, follow Walk in Truth on your favorite podcast app.